Welcome to episode 30 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 25th, 26th and 27th of April 2023. Fire Safety Matters is once again serving as the lead media partner for the exhibition. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Good morning, Mark. How's things with you at the moment? Yeah, all good here, Brian. You know, busy time, as you know. You've got an issue upcoming, and uh, which is technically the biggest issue of the year, isn't it? Because it's the head of the fire safety event where you do a huge preview of that. And we've got the Fire and Security Matters Awards with entries flooding in. And I've got other awards, the State of Excellence Awards, where that deadline's approaching. So busy time. And I, I know you enjoy this time here, don't you? Because, of course, with that fire safety event preview, you're going to be on site to the fire safety event in March, aren't you? I am indeed, Mark. Yes, I'm good. Thank you very much. At the telling of last month, I attended the first Going Places Roadshow in Falkirk with that carrier. And Ray Patrick and the team was on a brilliant event there, Mark, with lots of detail around the new fire safety regulations, of course. Back in the office, as you said, I'm currently working on the March print edition of Fire Safety Matters. It's a bumper edition of the magazine, 100 pages, possibly more. And we'll be taking this one to the NEC in April, as you mentioned, for the 19 group shows. This edition carries our usual preview section for the fire safety event, and the regular magazine focuses on three key areas, Mark, fire alarms and fire detection, software for fire safety, and also the construction sector. On top of that, there's part two of my review of the 2022 edition of the Fire City Matters Digital Conference and several excellent contributions from our regular columnists, including David Dennis Davis at the Fire Sector Federation. So in short, Mark, it's shaping up to be another great edition of the mag which I very much hope the readers are going to enjoy. Yeah, you put me to shame there because you're absolutely right. You did go to the Carrier Going Places event and there is two more and we've partnered with uh, Carrier for this. The next one's on the 1st of March at Brands Hatch Circuit um, in Longfield in Kent. And then the final one is on the 7th of March at the Aviva Stadium in Dublin. These are completely free to attend and you get CPD certificates for attending from us. So if you want to go to either the Kent one or the Ireland one, just throw into social media or Google going places with carrier um, or going places with carrier FSM and it will pop up and you can register for free. So please do come along to those. But we're going to move into the news now, Brian. And like I always say, you don't have to wait for this podcast to come out to get the latest fire safety news. You can go to our website, fsmatters.com, where you'll see all the latest news, prosecutions, products and services. And of course, you can look at our digital archives of our magazine you can sign up to get the magazine and the fia guide for free you can look at our back archive of webinars for free or sign up to upcoming webinars for free now or you can sign up to get our weekly e-newsletter which 50 odd thousand of you do weekly so please do go to fsmatters.com or if you can't remember that just put into a search engine fire safety matters and you get all that information and more but news is what we're talking about brian and that's how we always start this podcast and I don't think there's much bigger news than the first story that we're going to talk about. It's the one that everyone's been talking about. And that is obviously an article that you've written on this, which was titled Home Office Signals Commencement of Fire Safety England Regulations 2022. My word, we've talked around this for a long time, Brian, along with the Building Safety Act and looking at what this new 
legislation was going to do to update the fire safety order, but it is in place. And now we can matter-of-factly talk about it, and that's what we're going to do now. So the Fire Safety England Regulations 2022 came into force on the 23rd of January 2023, and the, implement, the majority of the recommendations made by the Grenfell Tower Inquiry in its Phase 1 report, which required a change in the law. The Fire Safety England Regulations 2022 seeks to improve the fire safety of blocks of flats in ways in which are practical, cost-effective for individual leaseholders and, importantly, proportionate to the risk of fire. So these regulations are coming to force following the publication and guidance issued on the 6th of December last year. So for high-rise residential buildings, and what I mean by that is multi-occupied residential buildings of at least 18 metres in height or seven or more storeys, the changes here are the following, and listen to this, Closely, please. Responsible persons must share electronically with their local fire and rescue service information about the building's external wall system and further provide the fire and rescue service with electrical copies of floor plans and building plans for the building. They must also keep hard copies of the building's floor plans in addition to a single page orientation plan of the building and the name and the UK contact details of the responsible person. And this must be done in a secure information box, which is accessible by firefighters. They must also install wayfinding signage in all high-rise buildings, which must be visible in low-light conditions. In addition, they must establish a minimum of monthly checks on lifts for the use of firefighters in high-rise residential buildings and on essential pieces of firefighting equipment. Also, they must inform the local fire and rescue service if a lift used by firefighters or any pieces of firefighting equipment on the premises is out of order for a period of longer than 24 hours. So, for multi-occupied residential buildings of 11 metres in height, the responsible persons must also undertake quarterly checks on all communal fire doors and annual checks on flat door entrance doors. In all multi-occupied residential buildings, the responsible person must provide residents with the relevant fire safety instructions and information about the importance of fire doors. So the Fire Safety Act 2021 clarifies the scope of the Regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order 2005. You know, most of us know that as the Fire Safety Order. To make clear that it applies to structure, external walls, including cladding and balconies, and individual flat entrance doors between domestic premises and the common parts. The Fire Safety England Regulations 2002, made under Article 24 of the Fire Safety Order, impose new duties on the responsible person with regard to the areas brought within the scope of the Fire Safety Order by the Fire Safety Act. Commencement of Section 1 of the latter was therefore a necessary precursor to the laying of the Fire Safety England Regulations 2022. So, that is a lot to take in there, Brian. This is a massive um, change to the regulatory landscape. We've talked about before, Brian, on this podcast, that, you know, since the original fire safety order up until last year, there has been no regulatory update to the fire sector. We're going to come on to another news story about government views on, on the failings of that in a moment. But this is a landmark. You know, we've got... More than one piece of uh, regulation gone through, whether it's been the Building Safety Act, whether it's been the Fire Safety Act, and now, of course, the Fire Safety England Regulations 2022, it has a massive effect. And this particular piece of regulation and legislation is talking about the requirements of the responsible persons. So you can read all about this on our website in great detail. Just throw into the search box on our website, Home Office 
signals commencement of fire safety England regulations. You can throw that into a search engine anywhere and it will pop. But Brian, I think there's something else you'd like to add to this story too. Yes, I do indeed, Mark. In a communication sent to the Fire Sector Federation, Sarah Gawley, who is the interim director for the Fire Events and Central Management Public Safety Group that sits within the Home Office, has noted, and I quote, the changes made through the Fire Safety England Regulations 2022 form an integral part of the reforms we're delivering to improve fire safety following the tragic fire at Grenfell Tower. They implement the majority of the recommendations made by the Grenfell Tower Inquiry in its phase one report to government that required a change in the law. Gawley went on to state, the Fire Safety England Regulations 2022 were made under Article 24 of the Fire Safety Order and imposed new duties on responsible persons of high-rise and other multi-occupied residential buildings. This includes a requirement to share specified information electronically with the Fire and Rescue Service in order to assist the latter in planning an effective operational response to a fire, check specified fire safety equipment on an ongoing basis and also provide residents with relevant fire safety instructions. Further, Mark Gawley has stated, in developing these reforms, we consulted widely, firstly through the Fire Safety Consultation 2020, and then as we developed the detail of the Fire Safety England Regulations 2022 to make sure that the changes are practical and proportionate in nature. The checks required for lifts, firefighting equipment and fire doors are intended to be simple enough in nature that responsible persons should not require the services of specialists, which may otherwise incur potentially disproportionate costs. The guidance on fire doors, Mark, is all about ensuring responsible persons are able to conduct the necessary checks themselves without the need to employ specialist support and also do so in a consistent manner. The guidance clarifies the definition of a fire door and further sets out how to undertake an inspection of them. Now, the National Fire Chiefs Council has produced infographics, animations and templates that help to explain the Fire Safety Union Regulations 22. I viewed some of them, Mark, and they're excellent. These can be found on the organisation's website at www.nationalfirechiefs, that's all one word, nationalfirechiefs.org.uk. In conclusion, Mark, Gawley noted, the Fire Safety England Regulations 2022 place a number of new requirements on responsible persons, and we're very keen to understand how they work on the ground in both the short and longer term. We've made a commitment in legislation to review the Fire Safety England Regulations 2022 within five years of commencement. But in the meantime, we'll work with the sector to monitor the impact on an ongoing basis. So indeed, major news to start the year here, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. And as I teased in that news story, uh, we've got a, another major piece of news that you want to lead off on. So fire away, Brian. Yes, Mark. The Building Engineering Services Association believes the government's recent admission that it was partly to blame for the Grenfell Tower tragedy is a, quote, crucial step forward for building safety. Housing Secretary Michael Gove has admitted that the building regulations in place at the time of the June 2017 fire, which claimed 72 lives, were faulty and unclear, in turn leaving them open to exploitation. In a series of interviews with the mainstream media, Mark, Gove also admitted that the government failed to effectively police the, and I quote, whole system of building safety, which allowed unscrupulous people to exploit a broken system in a way that led to tragedy. The Beza has welcomed what it describes as a noticeable change of stance since the Grenfell Tower inquiry took place. While giving evidence during proceedings, lawyers representing the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities claim that the building regulations were, and I quote, clear and unambiguous. Gove has now accepted that the guidance around Part B of the building regulations in particular was too loose and open to misinterpretation. While much of the recent focus has been on forcing developers to put right decades of faulty and unsafe work, the Beza believes it was equally important the government acknowledge its own failings. Now, David Fries, CEO at the Beza, said 
The industry bears a heavy weight of responsibility for the Grenfell Tower tragedy and the culture of corner cutting that led to it, but it's also important to acknowledge where guidance and enforcement failed. Freeze continued, the emergence of the Building Safety Act is a key legacy of Grenfell, but simply putting legislation in place is not going to be enough. The government must continue to consult closely with the industry to plug any gaps or areas of potential confusion in that legislation, and then commits wholeheartedly to enforcing the rules in order to keep people safe. Admitting where it went wrong in the past is, therefore, crucial to ensuring the same mistakes are not repeated. Gove informed the Sunday Times that the whole system of regulation was, and I quote, faulty, and that the government did not think hard enough or police effectively enough the whole system of building safety. The Beza has also praised Gove's announcement that legislation to create a responsible actor scheme is being drafted. This would then allow the Secretary of State to ban developers from the housing market if they fail to rectify any unsafe work. As reported by Fire Safety Matters at the time, Mark, Gove has given House Bills six weeks to sign a government remediation contract requiring them to repair buildings, some of which date back over 30 years, and also reimburse taxpayers at an estimated cost of £2 billion. This money would be on top of the building safety levy, which is expected to raise £5 billion from the industry towards cutting replacement projects and also other fire safety related works. Too many developers, along with product manufacturers and freeholders, have profited from these unsafe buildings and have a moral duty to do the right thing and pay for their repair, said Gove. In signing this contract, developers would be taking a big step towards restoring confidence in the sector and also providing much-needed certainty for all concerned. There will be no way to hide for those who fail to meet their responsibilities. So strong words from Michael Gove there. To date, 49 of the country's leading developers have verbally agreed to address historic construction problems. Importantly, these pledges will now be turned into legally binding commitments. So this is a huge story, Mark. What are your views on this one? Yeah, I'm going to add a couple more quotes from some of the main parties involved in a moment. I mean, just touching on some of what you said there, Brian. We we covered on the last podcast, in fact, Michael Gove giving House Builders six weeks to sign the government radiation contract requirement to repair buildings. You can go back to the last episode of the Fire City Matters podcast to, to listen to that. I mean, you know, listening to um, BSA on this... You know, they, they say that it's, you know, almost like a surprising change of tone from the government or certainly a notable change of stance is their exact words, wasn't it? Um, I think I think you've got to be realistic in these situations. They were in the middle of an inquiry. I would imagine the uh, the government was uh, trying to uh, follow the advice of lawyers in, in the meantime. So it doesn't entirely surprise me that certain things were said during the inquiry and now subsequent to that phase that, other things are being said now. What I what I would agree with is this will be a relief to many people involved that the government has accepted a responsibility in this. The fact that they are making changes to um, the whole regulatory stature of uh, the UK fire and safety um, regulations, as we just talked about in our previous news item, is a good thing. You know, there is you know, often said nothing good can come out of a tragedy. And that's absolutely right from a human loss of life point of view. And let alone, obviously, the, the property was homes that were lost there too. But the positive to this is there has been real change. The government has taken this seriously. And it has led the independent um, inquiry in, in, into Grenfell has happened. There's obviously been the independent review into building regulations of fire safety done by Dame Judith Hackett. You know, a lot has happened and been taken seriously post-Grenfell. That being said, though, we talked about this a long time ago, conferences that I've been part of, that this 
country far too often waits for a tragedy related to fire before it actually makes actual change. And, and, and it shouldn't have been the case in this situation. So certainly I, I concur that there are there are positives um, that, that have come out to this. But I want to add a little bit more that's been said by um, David um, Fries of BSA. And, and according to BSA, this will, as I've just said, they believe this will bring welcome relief to thousands of leaseholders who found themselves trapped in potentially unsafe and unsellable properties. So David Fries went on to say, the construction industry has a long road to travel to regain people's trust. These developments mean that it has started on that journey. The Secretary of State is clearly committed to putting right the huge social injustice. We would urge the government to keep the pressure on developers and ensure that all of these measures are properly enforced, as well as being backed by the full force of the law. I think it's evident that's going to happen, you know, from the strong stance that Michael Gove has come out and said. The only other thing I'd add to this, Brian, is Eddie Tuttle, who's the Director of Policy, External Affairs and Research at the Chartered Institute of Building, has also come out in support of comments made by Michael Gove. Um, Mr Tuttle has said, the announcement by the government, which echoes the finding of the Dame Judith Hackett in the Independent Review of Building Regulations and Fire Safety, is one that we very much welcome. The Grenfell Tower fire and subsequent public inquiry highlighted the consequences of deregulation and paved the way for the Building Safety Act. But it also revealed to the extent of which profit was being prioritised over building quality and safety. The Chartered Institute of Building is wholly committed to ensuring that our industry learns the lessons of the past and works to ensure those who occupy the buildings we go into are created safe and feel safe in their homes. So if you want to find out even more about this article, Brian wrote it in great depth on our website. You can go into the search box on our website and probably just type B-E-S-A and up it will pop. Or if you want to go onto a normal uh, search engine, throw in B-E-S-A welcomes government admission of guilt over Grenfell tragedy and it will pop up. So, Brian, we'll take a quick pause in the news now to uh, introduce our first guest to this episode of the podcast. Who have you got for us this time, Brian? Our first guest on episode 30 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Derek Hall, Director of Sales at Kentech Electronics, the business specialising in automatic extinguishing and suppression, fire detection and alarm panels and detection systems. Derek harbours more than 24 years of experience gained by operating in the fire detection and alarm industry. During his 12 years at Siemens, he was responsible for launching the Cerberus Pro range to the UK market. He moved to Kentech in late 2018. Derek is joined on the podcast by Craig Puddyfoot, the Managing Director of Early Birds Fire Protection Limited, the London-based systems installer. Craig took on the Managing Director's role in October 2016. He's a very highly skilled fire and security systems engineer with a strong knowledge and understanding of integrated systems. During the interview with Mark, Derek and Craig focused their attentions on two key issues, namely training and the installation of life safety systems. Well, I'm delighted to be joined on this episode of the podcast by not one, but actually two guests. One of the rare times we actually do a, a double header. I think it'll be really interesting for all our listeners. You know, we're lucky enough to be joined today by Derek Hall, who is the Director of Sales for Kendrick Electronics, and also Craig Potterford, who's the Managing Director of Early Birds Fire Protection. So we get both a manufacturer perspective and also an installer perspective. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you for joining me. How are you, Derek? First, are you well? I'm very well, thanks, Mark, and it's great to see you. Yeah, great to hear from you too. And Craig, how are you? 
Very well, thank you. Good to, good to see you. Well, this should be interesting. As I said, it's very rare that we get both uh, perspectives on this, and I've got a fair few questions to ask you, so let's get cracking. So this one's for both of you, if you don't mind. We'll start off with Derek, and then, Craig, you can chip in with an answer after that. But why is training in the fire industry so important, and has it become more important in recent years, do you think? Uh, John Marcus, a, uh, a really great question and uh, one that is actually very, very close to uh, my heart because as a, as a guy that came through an electrical electronic engineering background and stumbled into fire some 29 years ago, there just didn't seem to be any real progression into becoming a qualified and recognised fire engineer. So I think that that, that process of going from electric, electrical engineering into working on fire fire systems is not really transparent for um, many people within our in, in our industry. I know that um, organisations at the FIA are putting a, a huge amount of effort into um, recognised qualifications, but that only takes you so far. When it comes to a, um, a fire alarm panel and a fire alarm system, actually there's an even greater importance from the manufacturer to make sure that the installers that are actually uh, fitting and then maintaining the systems know exactly what they're doing on that specific type of product. Now, of course, that's also um, recognised within BS5839 Part 1 as well. So very early on in that standard, it does say about um, engineers, not just the company being competent and capable, and, and capable, but really that's backed up by training from the manufacturer. So so it's really important for Kentech to address that and make sure we're, we're actually making sure that our installers know exactly what they're doing, because after all, it is a life safety system. And that's, you know, really, you know, really reassuring for me to hear because it's, it's, it's nice and refreshing to, you know, we, I'm very, very familiar with Kentech's product lineup and, and it's a quality product lineup you've got from whether it's KMesh, Tactus, it, it's a great offering that you've got, but the systems are can only be as good as the competency of those people that are installing it. And, and it really is great to see that, you know, you really are focusing on making sure that education is there. And 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 then you've obviously worked with people like Craig. And Craig, this is probably where you're going to come in and, and give us a take on, on training on this. Well, actually, Mark, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we introduced the, uh, the Kentech Installation Partner Programme is because we knew that our installers and our customers were asking us for a lot more in-depth training and the vehicle to, for us to achieve that is the um, the partnership program yeah and that's where um, you know early birds and craig come along and um, and help us uh, um, not only work with the quality of product but make sure it's a quality of installation of course yeah the installation is key really um but for, for me with the with the training i mean the, the change in technology as well uh, like over the last few years you know we've got to adapt and to do that, the training is vitally important. Um, you know, like the tactics panels come a long way from when it first come out. And it's such a good panel now that, you know, the, the training just backs it up. And having the support there for that is, you know, is key. We, we've got quite a few sites in London, especially, where we've installed a lot of lot of tactics panels. And, you know, they're working well for us. Um, but I think with the, uh, with the training, it gives the competence and the confidence for the engineers to work on the panels. Um, and obviously, from a business point of view, you know, we're kind of protecting the business because we're making sure that our engineers are working to 
to the right standards and, and they know the systems they're working on. And that just protects not only the business, but it protects the client at the end of the day as well. You know, so there's important key things where training's just, you know, one element of making sure that everyone's protected along the way. So, so this next question's really for Derek. And we were talking about this off air, but I understand that fire panel manufacturers receive as many as 30,000 technical support calls every year, which is a huge amount. Can installer training be used to reduce this burden and pass on knowledge to end users during installation, Derek? Uh, actually, Mark, I mean, that um, 30,000 technical support calls is only to Kentec. Um, we, we log every single call into our business um, against an individual and also the company. So, you know, it's a huge amount of um, technical support calls. Now, what I'd say is that uh, to break that down, in fairness to uh, um, our installation partners, they're less reliant on us as a manufacturer for tech support calls because they've gone through the training, the learning curve, and also they're much more familiar with our products. We as a manufacturer spend a lot more time supporting companies that maybe haven't invested that time and effort into the um, into the training. It's really great that we work with somebody like uh, Craig at um, Early Birds because they're taking that burden away from us to a certain degree by investing that time up front with um, going through the training modules. Um, so it's really important for us as a manufacturer to make sure that um, um, we're given the right support at the right time because someone like Craig, for example, isn't ringing us up about um, a cable fault. They know how to solve those and find those and, um, and fix a system. But where we really want to help and support our um, installation partners is at the top end of the technical spectrum where they really do need our help and value that help at the right time. And I'm sure that Craig has got uh, um, a good view on that as well. Yeah, definitely. So um, from experience, uh, we've had engineers where they go to sites and they find issues and, you know, they can resolve it there and then because they've had the relevant training. And there's other times where we might come across something which is a little bit, uh, you know, beyond where they need to, they need that technical support in, in that respect. And by getting that technical support, it, it's it's there to support us. And from, from that, we, we don't really... We don't really have to, because we've had the training, it, it reduces the need for us to be calling every five minutes for, for technical support. So it's definitely, the, the training itself is definitely a, a key factor. So this next question is for both of you. We'll start with, with Derek first. What, in your opinion, makes life safety systems training impactful? And what does excellent training look like, in your opinion, Derek? Okay, um... You know, we actually had to change our um, approach to training when COVID hit us. And um, we had to go totally web-based and online-based. Um, and that kind of got us over a, a hurdle, but it didn't really satisfy the needs of our installers because, I mean, going back to my own apprenticeship days where um, you learn best when you've got a product in your hand, you can play around with it, and then you can work through the configuration tool. And the way that we've modularized that for Tactis is, um, first of all, the introduction of the product is done all by e-learning. So there's approximately 12 e-learning modules, and that gives the, the commissioning or service engineer a very deep outline view of the product and what it can and can't do. We then ask them to come into 
our training facility where they receive one full day's introduction to the product. And that kind of like helps them through the initial setting up of the system and also getting a basic um, fire alarm panel operating. We have to break that down into further modules. So if you want to do complex cause and effects or networking with our INS fiber network, or if you want to use the bridge function um, capability, then they're all additional days that we provide as part of that service to our Kentech installation partners. So you've got to you've got to break it down to make it easy, but it's a combination of hands-on playing around with the configuration tools and then actually having a successful installation. Craig, you got anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, yeah, we've actually got a guy on training tomorrow, so she's good. Um, but I, I know from when I speak to my engineers that the training courses they they can do them in their own time. The modules. Um, so th with that, it's it can be flexible around the business as well. Like, so that's another benefit in, in some respects where we can do the the modules separate and then have the hands-on experience while while the guys are actually at Kentex Training Centre, which is just you know it's ideal. So the next question is just for you, Craig, actually. Are there any projects that you can think of where previously completed training was particularly beneficial? Uh, yeah, to, to be honest, we've got um, we've got some sites on at the moment where it's been really beneficial. We're doing a lot of high-rise blocks um, in Solihull. Uh, I think we've got 30, 34 in total we're doing. Um, and the, the training's been key there, to be honest. So it, it's, it's been really, really good which has is, is helped us progress the project and, you know, get, get things done in a, a quicker and more manageable manageable process, really. And actually, a follow-up to that question for you, Craig, is is there a benefit to installing different life safety systems, i.e. other life safety systems manufactured by the same company on one site? And does that help make training easier for installers, in your opinion, Craig? If you've got a product that works with uh, a system such as Kentec, um, they do a wireless range as well now. So then them two things work quite well together. Um, and it's, it's a one-stop shop, really, in, in that instance for us. So it makes our life a lot easier to have a system that is all manufactured by one one manufacturer, basically. So it, it does help, definitely. Um, and the other thing as well is things such as um, it's adaptable with other products, so that makes it a lot easier when we come up against tenders where potentially in a tender or in a specification, it doesn't state a certain system or a certain type of system we have to adapt and overcome or provide the client with a better option sometimes. And Derek, I want to bring you back in now and I will ask this question to Craig as well, but I'll, I'll go to you first, Derek. Is training helping to professionalise the industry in your opinion? Uh, absolutely, Mark, and um, and that's why Kentech is so committed to it because I mean our, our brand at the end of the day is represented in the marketplace by really excellent installers. If they can't get it right, then ultimately it's our brand and reputation on the line. Um, but in, in in terms of taking it to that next step, obviously we're aware of different schemes with um, with the LPCB, LPS ten fourteen, and Bay SB two hundred three schemes. The FIA are now providing that individual um, certification for engineers. And it's about time the board manufacturers are then providing individual certification 
um, on, on its own product as well because so from my own experience is that uh, you can be an expert on one or two products but maybe not all of them that are available in the marketplace so we've got to make sure that our installation partners are experts on our products and i'll throw that over to to you craig do you have a view on it i totally agree with derek to be honest on that it's um it's definitely professionalizing the industry um I think as well, some of that comes down to the engineers as well, with them, the willingness. Um, if you've got a good team around you, then they always want to learn. So, And the way the, the way the industry is changing, the technology is changing, there's there's always scope to learn. Every day is a learning curve, really. I mean, um, yeah, fire away, Derek. And, and I think that on the back of the, um, the Grenfell Tower, we'll probably see a lot more emphasis on um, individual cert- certification and that hopefully will be driven by legislation as well because we can never afford another Grenfell Tower um, incident. No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I've been familiar with Kentech products for over a decade now. I've been lucky enough to have them demoed by you, for example, all over the world. You've shown me stuff and I've seen how much time and effort Kentech puts into to innovation and, and and today's conversation has been really really interesting for me yeah, it's lovely to see a manufacturer have strong working relationships with installers and being dedicated to the importance of training in this in this sector but before we go what i really want to do is i want to ask you first derek if people want to find out more about your very vast product offering at kentech is there a, what's the best website to go to? What's the best way to get in touch with you or to Kentech? How, how can people get in touch? Uh, Mark, um, always the best way is to come through our website. So that's um, www.kentech.co.uk. And there's always um, a part of the portal which will enable someone to get in contact with us very quickly. Um, one of the really great parts about the portal as well is that we, we also promote our Kentech installation partners and that's where we're very proud to have Craig's business, Early Birds, as um, as represented on our um, website. And absolutely, that was really my next point, um, Craig. Um, obviously, you're you're one of many installers that that reads our publication and gets our publication. But if someone is looking for an installation company, you know, I'm pretty sure you're going to tell me Early Birds Fire Detection is the right place to go. Uh, so, how can they get in touch with you? So you can get in touch with us um, at www.ebfp.co.uk um, or you can also contact us on 01233 That's option two. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. As I said, it's a rarity that I get to have both an installer and a match talking together. And, it, and it's great to see that, you know, you really are in sync and obviously have a, a strong partnership. And I would imagine our readership will have some food for thought there, the dedication to training and now they know yet more reasons to get in touch with Kentech and and obviously they know a little bit more now about early birds fire protection so thanks gents i really appreciate your time yeah thank you very much really appreciate your time too thank you mark So we return to the news now, and like I said at the start of the podcast, you don't need to wait for this podcast to get all the latest news, prosecutions, and products and services. You can go to our website, fsmatters.com. If you can't remember that, put into a search engine, Fire Safety Matters, up we pop. And on the website, you can see all the latest news, as I said. You can also look at all of our upcoming webinars, watch our back 
archive for webinars, or sign up to get copies of the magazine for free. You can read digital copies of the magazine, the FIA guide on there, and you can sign up to our weekly e-newsletter. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn as well, and we put all of our news stories straight through there as well. But we're returning to the news now, and uh, it's another interesting story, Brian, and this one was titled... Proposed sprinkler requirements in care homes, a positive step, asserts BSA. So I'm going to go into this a bit now. So the recent announcement from the Department of Leveling Up Housing Communities on proposed changes to approve document B of the building regulations is welcomed by the Business Sprinkler Alliance, who are the BSA, as a common sense step in the drive to improve fire safety in care homes. The government is proposing several new updates to approve document B, and I would add it is long overdue that that happens, Brian, including recommendations to mandate sprinklers in care homes regardless of height. As such, the government is inviting responses to its consultation process, which remains open until the 17th of March, and I would certainly encourage everyone to take part in that where it's relevant to you. So according to Care Home UK, there are circa 17,100 care homes in the UK, um, which house nearly half a million individuals. Recent figures from the Home Office have indicated that for the financial years 2016-17 to 2020-2021, there were just over 3,100 fire incidents in such premises with 589 people being injured as a result and tragically seven individuals lost their lives in these incidents. The majority of UK care homes have fire alarm detection systems installed while members of staff have to undergo fire safety training. However, the majority of care homes do not have sprinkler systems installed. So I'm going to bring you in this in a moment, Brian. Um, You know, the stats there are are, are pretty stark. You know, um, there have been... um, fatalities and just one fatality is too many there's been 589 injuries in that period of time i think it's pretty obvious it's very difficult sometimes to move people from care homes in instance of a fire they may not be able-bodied um and, and it makes it even harder they'll certainly in instance of a fire um be very very scared and and is even and you know and add that to any disabilities they may have can make it very hard to um, evacuate people from these premises safely. From a personal point of view, from who's had someone, my grandmother was in a care home, assisted living facility for a, for a few years. I do strongly believe there needs to be sprinklers in these premises. I think I've talked before on this podcast, Brian, about where when I was at the FPA, the Fire Protection Association, I have actually been in the middle of a simulated fire and see how quickly you could lose visibility. And I, I had breathing apparatus on, so it wasn't like I could be overcome by smoke. And of course, as anyone listening to this knows, you know, I would long been overcome by smoke um, before the fire would have killed me in that instance. But it's it's a it's a terrifying experience, even in a simulator situation, let alone if if you're elderly or disabled, um, and you may not know your way around that premises particularly, because it's it it's where you live, but it's not like you're my home, Brian, for some people either in that situation. So for me, I've seen the benefits of what sprinklers have done of putting out fires where they become major fires and it can prevent a total loss of a building and it can definitely save people's lives. So from my personal point of view, I do think um, it should be mandated that sprinklers are in there. But I think you've got more to add to this too, Brian. I do indeed, Mark, and I would echo your comments there to begin with. Now, care homes can be vulnerable to fire outbreaks. We know this. There are instances of this happening in the past. The fire at the New Grange Residential Care Home in Chessant back in 2017, for example, 
claimed the lives of two people while the building itself was substantially damaged. This fire led to a coroner raising the issue of a lack of fire sprinklers in such buildings, highlighting the belief that the installation of such systems could prevent future deaths. A substantial fire occurred at the Beachmere Care Home in Crewe in 2019. There were no sprinklers installed on this occasion either, Mark. If the incident commander had not overruled the stay-put policy and ordered a full and immediate evacuation of the premises, the outcome of this fire would have been very different indeed. The Beachmere Care Home incident also raises the question as to why elderly people, many of whom need assistance, of course, were housed in a building which was not served by sprinklers and, therefore, vulnerable to fire damage, potentially. Many care home residents are not readily mobile and have difficulty in evacuating unaided. Additionally, due to age or dementia issues, many residents are easily disoriented or confused. Between the financial years 2016 and 2017 and 2020 to 2021, Statistics issued by the Home Office indicate that 203 fire incidents resulted in the need for 368 people to be rescued through the intervention of fire and rescue services personnel. In three of those incidents, Mark, 25 or more people needed to be rescued. For this reason, and given the casualty figures noted earlier, the Business Sprinkler Alliance firmly believes that care homes are higher-risk buildings, regardless of their height, and should be designed with automatic sprinkler systems that deliver life, health and property benefits. Fire sprinkler systems are efficient and effective in reducing the impact of fire, such that when fires do start, they're quickly contained and further materials are not involved, thereby minimising damage and fire spread. Sprinkler systems add another layer of protection and make buildings such as care homes resilient to the impact of fire, simply because they automatically control or even put out the blaze before the fire and rescue service arrives at the scene. This affords a secondary benefit to the well-being of staff, residents and relatives alike, who know there are additional measures in place. Those measures reduce the likelihood of care home residents needing to be rehomed. Uh, Ian Cox, Mark, who's the chair of the Business Sprinkler Alliance, has observed, and I quote, the BSA has long since advocated for the installation of sprinkler systems in care homes. We welcome the government's consultation and the proposed amendments to approve document B of the building regulations, including the proposed mandate that all new care homes are fitted with sprinklers. There is no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to fire safety, of course, the consequences of not doing the right thing can prove tragically fatal. It's high time we change that situation. Well, amen to that comment, I would suggest, Mark. Undoubtedly, another important piece of news for the sector. Now, I'll carry on with our final news story of this podcast, Mark. It's a very timely one. The Institution of Fire Engineers has joined forces with leading training facility, the Fire Service College, in support of National Apprenticeship Week 2023, which is actually going on at the moment, Mark. It runs from Monday the 6th until Sunday the 12th of February. The move underpins a determined bid to boost the number of new entrants to the profession. Emboldened by a stated desire to drive recruitment and encourage young talent into the fire sector, the duo of key industry bodies will be actually demonstrating the varied and diverse career opportunities to be derived from apprenticeships, with the theme of this edition of National Apprenticeship Week being Skills for Life. Following the introduction of the Fire Safety England regulations on Monday the 23rd of January, which we've spoken about, fire engineers are now more in demand than ever before, and pivotal across all aspects of the fire safety within the built environment. Legislation changes have increased the obligations placed upon responsible persons, and as a direct result of this, public expectations are now rising. There's now also a substantial need for a greater cohort of competent and qualified professionals within the fire sector, which in turn demands that current professionals upskill in order to meet the new requirements outlined for their roles. As the global professional membership body for fire engineers, the IFE is wholly dedicated to supporting its members through legislative change and encouraging new talent to join the industry. Evidencing this truism, Mark, the IFE recently made its student membership grade a free-of-charge proposition. 
thereby providing the new talent pool with access to key resources and online continuing professional development. The latter allows individuals in the sector to keep pace with regulation changes and in parallel, remain abreast of new ways of working in addition to best practice. Now in the initial stages of developing an early careers networking group, the IFE is tapping into its global community in a bid to encourage individuals to join the fire sector's ranks. This will provide budding fire engineers at the fire service college with a platform to share knowledge, raise issues and also network among themselves. As part of the apprenticeship pathway, Mark, every apprentice must successfully undertake an independent endpoint assessment to confirm they've achieved occupational competence and capability. The IFB recognises the Fire Service College's endpoint assessment as a route to membership. Working cohesively will enable students to apply for technician grade membership, in turn earning the post-nominals TI Fire E. Now, commenting on the joint venture, Mark, Steve Ham, who's CEO of the IFB, has stated, and I quote, it's such an exciting time for people to be joining the industry. Through working with the Fire Service College, we're able to showcase clear pathways into the fire sector and also how it offers a range of diverse opportunities. From mapping wildfires in the US through to developing hydrogen energy projects in Japan, not all roles lead to becoming a firefighter. Indeed, fire engineers remain crucial in our mission to secure a sustainable and fire-safe future. And Ham went on to conclude, at the IFE, it's our responsibility to offer inspiration, support and professional development to the next generation of fire engineering talent. Pre-membership for apprentices and developing platforms for young talent means that we're purposefully showcasing our dedication to the next generation of fire engineers. What's your take on this one, Mark? Ah, the Fire Service College, a site I know very, very well. When I worked at the Fire Protection Association, they were and still are based on the Fire Service College. I actually lived out in Morton in Marsh, where that is, for a couple of years, so I know the site very, very well. I mean, there's those that know me from my time there know a very amusing story of uh, when I had to hold the fire sector summit, a conference I did for the FPA, in the fire engine uh, garage uh, due to lack of space. And it was entertaining having to put uh, a carpet and drapes in there. And what was more amusing is I once did a eliminating false alarms uh, seminar from that venue and a false alarm happened during it. And I was absolutely mullered for that by all the guests. So yeah, I know the Fire Service College very, very well. Fond memories of of that site. And obviously we still got clients there, BAFE, that are based on site. I mean, t- talking about this story as a whole it's something that we've talked about in the magazine with Ian Moore of the FIA before the Fire Industry Association and there needs to be a drive to get younger people into the fire sector whether it is as fire engineers as we're talking about in this situation or fire safety managers or um, in any form of the fire sector let alone you know most people seem to think of the fire sector when you talk about it as, as the fire and rescue service. It, it's much wider than that. The vast majority of people listening to this podcast are not firefighters. They work in the wider fire industry. And I think all of us that are in this sector listening to this can say, we probably didn't expect to be in the fire sector when we left school or at school or university or whatever route we did to get here. But I've loved my time working in the fire sector. I, I, you know, I'm a journalist by trade, as everyone knows, and I didn't expect to own a business um, <laughs> thanks to the fire sector and the relationships that I had there. And and obviously, you know, we've got seven publications in our company now that aren't just fire safety, but fire sector helped me on that journey. It is a fantastic sector. I have been all over the world and all over the country. Um, we're all over the United Kingdom too, 
with this job. And it's not just me, you know, the people listening will be able to say that, you know, whether you're an installer, a fire engineer, a fire safety managers, you can go to some fantastic sites, uh, you know, at the top of the shard. There's lots and lots of places that this job can take you. And I think when you talk to people, that's important about the pathway into this sector and say, this job can be very diverse. It can take you to amazing um, sites and places and that might not appeal to everyone obviously but you know you seem to find a lot of longevity from people staying in the sector you know most of the people I know in the sector have been in it a long long time longer than the eight to ten years that I've been in it and and I know Brian that you felt you know, when you came in covering fire in your job before this um, that that you know your background mainly being security before that that it's very quick you can fall in love with the the sector and the people here and I think it's with that kind of passion that we all have a responsibility to teach people to come into this sector is not a dead-end job there's many routes that you can go I mean two things I'm passionate about um, in terms of um, bringing people into the sector is inclusivity whether that be um, gender sexual preference whether it is um, race um, age whatever we want to see um, as diverse of people coming into the sector as possible. And I said that that latter part there is the important part of getting younger people through as well. And for me, there's still plenty of work to be done. But when we look at what's happening here, I, I think it's a great move by IFE to give students free membership because IFE can provide them with great support, great information and give them an even greater grasp and knowledge of the sector to help them grow. I think that's a really, really, really good move. And of course, you know, that that's natural for the fire service college to support that because, you know, that they are teaching uh, people in, in this sector. So yeah, I completely do support the fact that we need to get more people into the sector and, and we really need to do an education piece about just how broad the role and, and, and how interesting a job it can be. And for me, it has always not just been a job, it's been a career. And that is the same for most people that I know in this sector. But, you know, just finishing off on this, um, I want to take some comments from uh, Claire Mowbray, who's the uh, Learning, Delivery and Transformation Director of the Fire Service College. She said, our apprenticeship programme has been developed by sector experts, taking on board feedback from previous apprentices, all those who take part in the apprenticeship programme with ourselves have access to world-class training facilities. That is true. I have been there. And experienced high-quality instructors are educating them. Our apprenticeships are a fantastic route into becoming a fire and rescue professional. And she goes on to say, apprenticeships also enable those from a diverse range of backgrounds perspective to access a career in the fire and rescue service with different career paths available. Among them, the role of a firefighter, community roles and careers focused on fire safety. So that looks at another element to it as well. You've gone from the engineers to also getting into the, the fire and rescue service. It is a fantastic profession um, Either way that you go, whether it's the fire and rescue side or I would call the more fire industry side. And it's great to see people working together to, to drive more equality and to drive younger people coming into the sector. Because we need younger people to come in with new skills and to and and to, you know, we, we, I can't carry on doing my job forever. That's for sure. So, you know, we, we need youth movement coming through to replace workers that, 
you know, retire or move out of the sector. So I want to finish off, Brian, because that's that's the end of the news for this episode of the podcast. But there's there's one other thing I really want to touch on. And we touched on the last episode of the podcast, and that's the Fire and Security Matters Awards. The deadline is fast approaching. It's the 31st of March 2023 is the entry deadline. It's completely free to enter. Please, if you're listening to this, do enter. It'll only take a few moments to do so. But it is the perfect way to get yourself a colleague, your team, your organisation, maybe a supplier or a client, product or a service, recognised by your peers. You know, the best part of my job, hands down, Brian, is getting people, getting in contact so excited when they've been shortlisted on these awards. So please do enter. The categories for FIRE are Fire Installation Company of the Year, that's sponsored by Apollo, Fire Safety Manager of the Year, sponsored by TO Fire Safety, Fire Safety Team of the Year, sponsored by EMS. We've got the Fire Safety Project of the Year, and that can really be a case study of how you've worked with someone as well as just an overall project. Um, Then there's Fire Safety Innovation of the Year as well, so that's any product or modified product of the last 18 months. And then there's Fire Safety Campaign of the Year, sponsored by Uptick. Following on from what we just said, you know, Fire Industry Woman of the Year, sponsored by FFE, absolutely something that we champion as well, of seeing more women come into the sector and celebrating women in the sector as well. So please do enter. You've got until the 31st of March to do so. And the website for that to do is firesecurityawards.com. That is firesecurityawards.com. Listen, if you can't remember that, just type in Fire and Security Matters Awards into any search engine and up we pop at the top of the the listings. So I would strongly urge you to enter that. So, Brian, that's the end of the news part, as I said, of this, and it's time to introduce our final guest. So who have you got for us? Our second guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Paul Adams, Marketing Manager for Hoshiki Europe, the manufacturer of fire detection and alarm solutions for commercial and industrial applications. Paul has diligently served the business for 22 years now, having joined the company back in July 2000 in the role of technical author. He became Deputy Marketing Manager in 2013, before moving into his current role in November 2015. He is now responsible for the marketing planning and marketing strategy serving the UK, European, Middle East and Indian offices. Joining Paul for the interview is Will Lloyd, Technical Manager at the Fire Industry Association. Will became part of the team at the Trade Association back in December 2015, having previously worked at the Building Research Establishment. At the BRE, Will served in the role of Product Manager for the Electronic Security Team. He's a trained fire detection and alarm system installer. During their conversation with Mark, Paul and Will concentrate on multi-sensor technology, looking in particular at compliance issues, false alarms and also some typical applications. Good morning, Paul. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Mark. And good morning, Will. We've got two guests, as I said, for today. How are you, Will? I'm fine, Mark. How are you? Yeah, great, great. I've been really looking forward to this. As obviously, we work very close with the FIA, as you know, Will, from doing the new FIA guide that came out recently. And we've got our awards, joint awards that are open. And anyone listening, please do enter the fire and security matters awards for free by the 31st of March. You know, we're very, very proud of our partnership with the FIA and very thrilled to have won an award for the FIA guide from the PPA and and Hachiki is an organization I've worked with for many years I don't know how long I've known you now Paul I mean it must be a good eight Economy. years I would say 
Well, yeah, maybe as long as I've been at Hachiki, I think that's probably over twenty years. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's been a long time, and I, I really want to use this opportunity because Hachiki got a fantastic range of products out. And the point of this part of the podcast is to really educate our audience on different kinds of technologies. And of course, Will reinforces this from a technical point of view from the Fire Industry Association. So I've got some questions I want to fire at both of you, but I'm going to probably pick on you first, Paul, if that's okay. Mm. I want to talk about the need for multi-sensors and the benefits. What do they do over other sensors, in your opinion? Okay, well, if we're talking about a true multi-sensor, and this is, this is, there is a definition of multi-sensor uh, in the PS5839, but it's, it's, I think it's important that we nail it right at the beginning. So a true multi-sensor is a device that will use more than one sensing element to determine whether there is uh, a fire. Um, there are products sold on the market labelled as multi-sensors, but they will have a, a, an optical sensor, which then we might be enhanced by a heat sensor. So it's still an optical sensor. It's just got a heat sensor giving it a, a second opinion, if you, if you like. Whereas a true multi-sensor will use the combination of both of those elements, or more than one element, in the, in the case of a CO sensor, to determine um, what's happening in the environment. So that's the true mod sensor. You know, that's how we how we see it. And the benefits over a single criteria sensor is that second opinion. You're taking two uh, phenomena that are in the environment and you're sampling those and you're combining the information from those two sensing elements to determine what's actually happening. So, it, you know, one element can be fooled by certain um, criteria. Two elements rarely are fooled. They are, they're, they're reacting together to, to tell you that there's something going on, that there's a fire there. So uh, in terms of filtering out false alarms, for example, that's where we see the benefit of multi-sensors. So, Will, let's talk about compliance. I want to talk about how can you achieve it and what does a true multi-sensor compliance look like, in your opinion, Will? Um, well, true multi-sensor compliance uh, can be achieved by various methods. Um, there are um, BSEN 54 suites, which covers the whole of the uh, fire alarm product range, and there are specific ones for multi-sensors, which is 29, 30 and 31. Uh, but let's not forget, we have the individual standards for the heat detector, uh, BS uh, 54.5, and the, uh, the individual for the smoke detector, 54.7. Um, so we can combine those um, to create a multi-sensor, uh, but the best way of compliance is the true multi-sensor standards, which is 29, 30, and 31. Uh, they have a combination of whether it's um, heat, smoke, heat, um, smoke and CO and various combinations. If you are looking to buy a multi-sensor, I would always recommend to look for the, read the certification because that's the important bit. So just want to follow up on that a bit, Will, how many modes of operation does a multi-sensor have and are they all tested? And also, which say have the capability to use the full range of modes of operation? So this is going to be down to individual manufacturers. And I must admit, Paul, uh, I did drop onto um, Redbook Live 
um, because I know Hochiki is certificated uh, by BRE LPCB. And I did have a quick peek at your multi-sensor certificate. Uh, and if I counted correctly, there were 24 different certificated modes of operation. So you could set a Hochiki multi-sensor to 24 different settings. That's true. Yeah, that's and, our latest mod sensor. Yeah, and the question I always have to people is, do they take it out the box and just use the default? <laughs> and I think this is where we're falling down with multi-sensors, is that I think people don't understand them enough. So, Paul, let's um, go back to you. Let's talk about the topic of false and unwanted alarms. In your opinion, what are the common mistakes that contribute to unwanted alarms and, and what are the impacts that these can cause? Okay, well, there's lots and lots of uh, reasons for false alarms. Um, there are hundreds of false alarms every year, unfortunately, uh, 200,000 plus, I think. Um, and they can be caused not necessarily by the product going wrong or the systems, but uh, some, mainly by the environment. Um, I know Will's uh, talked about this before, but, you know, buildings to to have a building with no false alarms, you know, to guarantee that you just wouldn't open it to the public <laughs> and it would sit quite happily and, and, and not false alarm. Um, people create false alarms, you know, the processes that go on in the buildings, uh, the environmental factors that people introduce on their in their everyday tasks. Um, unfortunately, that is the main cause of false alarms. We, we can sophisticated sensors and multi-sensors fall into that bracket we can tune those out you know we can we can fine-tune the sensor to fit the environment if we do a risk assessment and we know that a forklift is going to produce exhaust fumes between these certain hours we can make sure the sensors in that area uh, are only working on heat mode for example so we can with multi-sensors you just have that flexibility to be able to tailor the sensing elements to suit what's going on in that environment uh, to make sure that you're not causing uh, the alarms to go off uh, just down to day-to-day -day activities. So, Paul, I mean, you know, I'm very familiar with your products and, you know, I've, I've been demonstrating them on exhibition stands across the world from you and your and your team. And, and without doubt, you know, the reputation that Hachiki's got is is fantastic. But one thing that can affect this is obviously is humans. And the question I've got for you is, do technicians understand all the modes of operation that are in multi-sensors and have they got the knowledge to pick the right mode? Uh, I'd like to say yes, but I think in reality, I think as multi-sensors are getting more and more sophisticated, unfortunately, the engineer is faced with so much choice and so much uh, technicality around the product that it's very easy, as Will said, to just use the product straight out of the box on the default mode. So it's really down to training. And, you know, we're a big proponent of training. We we offer free product training to all our customers. Uh, we we conduct CPDs on a regular basis to try and build up that background knowledge that we think all fire engineers should have. It's all about competency at the end of the day. So if you've got a sophisticated product, you need a well-trained engineer uh, or a well-trained uh, system designer, I guess, first, and then a well-trained engineer to install it and maintain it. Otherwise, yeah, um, we're just going to shoot ourselves in the foot. We put these sophisticated products up. We don't know how they're programmed. We don't know um, from building to building how they're, they're operating. So, yeah, it's down to, down to education. 
So, Will, I want to bring you in on this as well. So, on that topic, can we explore a bit more about technicians' understanding of the capability of multi-sensors, please? Yeah, I think Paul hit the nail right on the head. It is about education. Um, the FIA offer full qualifications. Uh, we offer a full design, advanced designer. And part of that is we try and explain that not all multi-sensors are the same. And you need to program and decide and pick your mode of operation for the multi-sensor, for the fire risk um, that you have. Um, and I don't think people do it often. And more importantly, and the bit that I know doesn't happen, is that even if a designer does select a multi-sensor and select a mode of operation, he never tells anyone. So the commissioning engineer doesn't know what to program it as. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Paperwork, my favourite topic is paperwork. paperwork. I mean, even worse, building on that, Will, uh, an engineer turns up who's never been to a building before and sees there's a mod sense on the on the ceiling. How does he know what that mod yeah. sense has been programmed to do? Yeah. You know, if it's a very sophisticated uh, device, you know, like our ACD with 24 modes, how does he know that which mode it's operating in if there's no paperwork to, to back it yeah. up? This, this is it. And how does he test it? What does he need to test it? Is he going to sit there and go, well, I've tested it with smoke and heat, but it's actually looking for CO. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, Will, just moving same. on from that a bit, um, obviously designers may have decided on a mode of operation, and, and this leads on to Annex E of BS5839 Part 1. Can you elaborate a bit more on this, please, Will? Yeah. Um, annex E, it's an informative annex, so it's advice and guidance. Um, a lot of the standard um, of 5839 Part 1 is advice and guidance. We try and help people as much as possible. And Annex E is about uh, the selection of multi-sensors. Uh, and it has some guidance on the type of fires and how different sensors react to it, the type of false alarms uh, and how those sensors react to it. So you can select by looking at some simple tables um, what false alarm, what sort of fires am I expecting and what sort of false alarms am I expecting? Am I expecting dust? Am I expecting steam in this area if it's a hotel bedroom for argument's sake? And you can select using that criteria and those tables, a mode of operation and a multi-sensor. Um, and then there is uh, a table that you can use to record that. No one does. Um, uh, so that can be passed on to the commissioning engineer, put in the paperwork, or for the maintenance engineer. So there is guidance in the BS, uh, the code of practice, for the selection of multi-sensors. I just really don't think it's used enough. If you come on our advanced design course, we'll teach you how to use it. And on that front, on the education front, um, just we're rounding off from Will. Will actually did a fantastic CPD session as part of the Fire Safety Matters Digital Conference, which you can now watch on demand. Uh, just put into a search engine, Fire Safety Matters Digital Conference, or if you want the direct URL, it's fsmdigitalconference.com. And Will's session is on the changing legislative landscape. And and that topic, Will, if you remember, it talked about there have been many changes to legislation recently, which is <laughs> somewhat rare in the fire sector, even though we've got two major people pieces of legislation come in now and this session presented an overview of all the recent changes and explained um how this might affect you i mean you probably remember the session quite well because we had a load of questions coming even though yeah, we did get an awful lot of questions so it was a really good session i really enjoyed that conference i must admit yeah we did too and it's there for everyone to listen to free on demand fsmdigitalconference.com but i want to round off just will's part of this by saying 
I'm sure everyone who's familiar with the Fire Industry Association said key partner for us. If you're not a member of the FIA, please do consider becoming one. You can go to the FIA's website, which is fia.uk.com. You can see all the membership benefits there. Please do consider uh, becoming a member. And of course, you also get a copy of the FIA guide that we print annually for doing so. So I want to round off by moving to to Paul. Paul, as I said at, at the top of this uh, interview segment, I'm very, very familiar um, with the Cheeky products, but this part of the podcast is really to try and educate people more about different kinds of technology. Now, I'm going to catch you a little bit on the on the hoof on this one. Where would you say is the fastest growing area for um, her Cheeky products now? Is it is it tall buildings? Is it retail premises? Is it hospitals, government rooms, public premises? I mean, you're probably going to say we cover all of that. But the reason I'm asking this question is we've got people listening to this podcast that are end users or installers across a multitude of different premises types. So I just thought this might be an opportunity to say where some of your key markets are for your products. Um, yeah, I'm going to repeat what you said. We, our products can be installed in any environment, to be fair, and we operate in multiple vertical sectors. So education, healthcare, ind- industry, uh, commercial. So um, we're moving more into systems. You know, Hochiki, most people listening probably know that Hochiki as a, as a device manufacturer. Uh, but over the past few years, we are becoming more and more of a systems install- uh, a supplier. Um and that's where that's where our focus is. We still produce devices, but uh, systems is is where we're heading. And just going back to the multi sensors, we've got two uh, on the market: the ACC, which is a two criteria multi sensor, heat and smoke. And then, as we touched upon, uh, Will mentioned earlier, the ACD, which is our twenty four mode uh, multi sensor with smoke, heat, and CO. Those that's our flagship product at the moment. That's the most sophisticated sensor that we've ever brought to market. And if you need to learn more about either of those products, to visit the Hochiki website, which is hochikieurope.com. Brilliant. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to sit down with us. And, and also to you, Will, thank you very much. And as I said, I would encourage everyone to visit the Hochiki website and the FIA website. Before we go, Paul, uh, is Hochiki got any social media channels that you'd like to promote that people could ask questions? If anyone wants to get in touch with you, is there an easy way to do so? Yes, certainly. We're we're on uh, LinkedIn and uh, Twitter and Facebook, but I'd also like to just quickly plug our next webinar, which is on the 23rd of February. Uh, and we are talking about multisensors, we're talking about the true certification of multisensors and how important it is to read the small print of the certification. Absolutely. Th- those webinars are always fantastic that Cheeky do, completely free to attend. So go to the website, sign up free, follow them on social media. You'll see all of the easy ways to, to sign up. And gents, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for giving me your time. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Mark. us to the end of episode 30 of the fire safety matters podcast many thanks indeed to our guests on this edition namely derek hall from kentech electronics craig puddyfoot of early birds fire protection limited paul adams from hoshiki europe and also will lloyd of the fire industry association you can read more on the issues raised in this edition of the podcast and others by visiting the fire safety matters website the web address you need to access is www.fsmatters.com we do hope you've enjoyed the content delivered in the podcast and found it informative 
Please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming editions. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG and also access our LinkedIn page at 530 Matters Magazine and website. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.